Hey, this is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we're going to be hosting the .NET Developer Days Conference in Warsaw, Poland, October 23rd through the 25th. Developer Days is one of the largest events in Central and Eastern Europe dedicated to application development on the .NET platform. And we'll be recording a number of shows from the conference and hanging out with you. And early bird pricing ends August 31st. So go to developerdays.pl and get your tickets now. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. In my makeshift office slash studio because my computer is still dead. Oh no, dead computers. It's one of those computers that has the boot drive as like some sort of chip that's in the motherboard. Oh, the M2. Yeah. Yeah. And so we were recording this very show um, a couple of weeks ago. Halfway through, my computer blue screened. Yeah, and wouldn't you, come back. Yeah, it's not and, good. And the 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 boot controller, the boot hard drive was not showing up in the BIOS. How is that for crazy? And then uh, I just rebooted a couple times, and it's back. It's fine. Yeah, but but, then, but now I your faith is shaken, right? Like, yeah, I can't trust it. it. I don't and trust it, you anymore. Yeah. Well, I'm uh, not going to throw the company under the bus, Asus. But uh, come on, guys, <laughs> give me a break. Stuff breaks, man. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, I have a really good piece for Better Know Framework. Roll it. Awesome. All right, man, what do you got? You know what I hate? Tell me. When you try to load a project in Visual Studio or you're trying to write an app that accesses the file system. Right. And you get that error that there's too many characters in this file path. <laughs> I can't believe that's still going on. It, uh. Yeah. I, and basically built into .NET system IO is all of these, you know, tools to access the file system and they don't work with long file names. Yeah. It's up to 260 characters, sort of the limit. Yeah. So Which is, it's it so w- old school. Like, really? I know. It should just, this is 2000. What is this? 2019? Yeah, this is 2019. Like <laughs> Come on. <laughs> anyway. NTFS fixed this a while ago. Yes, that's right. So Alpha FS is a open source.NET library mm-hmm. providing more complete Win32 file system functionality to the .NET platform than the standard system IO classes. The cool thing is you can just drop it in and use it instead of system io oh wow it's completely compatible so literally mapping all the same features so you're using system io you're having this problem you add alpha fs to your project flip it over no code changes ta-da and bye-bye system io path too long exception so that's just one thing so they're basically using all the advanced ntfs features yeah so there's the long paths the creating junctions and hard links feature you can access hidden volumes. You can enumerate volumes. You have transactional file operations, support for NTFS alternate data streams, uh, accessing network resources, SMB DFS. That's pretty cool. You can create access folders and files that have leading and trailing spaces in their name. Oh, gee, that would be nice. 
Now you're just talking crazy talk, Mr. Frank. Uh, no, crazy talk. <laughs> Folder and file enumeration supporting custom filtering and error reporting and recovery to deal with access denied exceptions. Because, you know, nothing says screw you like a long-running script that blows up 15 minutes into it. And you don't know until the next morning. Sure, because of a fi- because of a privilege ex- missing something stupid. Yeah, yeah. happens. Well, All there right, you man. go. Good that's one. my. Uh, that's you know my what's find. amazing? That I mean, that is that's actually a part of a framework. That, that <laughs> it's is an open source it, library that adds to the framework. You did better know a framework about a framework about a framework. <laughs> I'm so confused. <laughs> I know. <laughs> better know a drop in replacement framework. There you go. Even better. All right, who's talking to us, buddy? Grabbed a comment off of show 1618, the one we did back in January 2019 with one Billy Hollis. We were talking about UX design, mm. which has a lot to do with accessibility. And uh, and Robin Crom had this comment. He says, it's a shame we need more talks about UX design, but it's true. As a developer, I see myself fall into the same well-known mistakes. Just because I can make something doesn't mean the user needs it. Mm. And to make something work the way I want doesn't automatically mean that everyone understands it either. Unfortunately, supporting an application with millions of users, this is made very clear to me every few weeks. <laughs> Somebody's getting a few support tickets. Right. For me, UX design is just another thing on the list of why someone should not develop software alone. Mm. Uh, yeah. And he's talking about this particular show, the show with Bill. He says, this may not add direct value to me, but it was nice to hear the three of you ramble on about bad design. And mm-hmm. we do ramble on, it's true. And it helps remind me of my lazy self that I actually have to do more work in this area. Mm. But he does add one particular comment. He mentioned... Uh, me, actually, Richard recapped Billy from a previous show about the basic ideas of a great UI solution for WPF, and most importantly, something that would be easy to learn, and then said, which sort, of, which sort of takes Prism out of the list, followed by Prism is so complicated, which was true, and Robin says, I used to agree with these statements, which is why I skipped Prism when I was looking for a framework to use in the next version of GreenShot, which obviously is the app he's maintaining with all those users. Yeah, uh, I know for a fact that Brian Lagunas, who we've had on the show, has put a lot of effort into Prism to make it attractive again. Besides writing code for the framework on GitHub, he makes a lot of tutorial videos, which are available on his website, and also does some Pluralsight courses. And for me, Brian's recent tweets with links to his tutorials gave me the drive to block out some time in the coming weeks to have a look at it and decide for myself. And while I can't yet answer the question if Prism should be considered easy to learn and a great and a great UI solution for WPF, I don't want to leave Richard's comment unchallenged to chase users away from it. Maybe get Brian to make that answer. Hmm. hmm. You know, we haven't done a WPF show in a while, and it's hard to argue with that. And Brian is putting a lot of energy into it. No two ways about that. So it's probably a good time for us to uh, maybe loop back. If he's really lightened up and modernized uh, Prism, that says a lot. Yeah, both WPF developers who listen to the show will really like that one. (laughs) You know, that's very cynical of you. (laughs) Brian and Billy. There you go. (laughs) We could have them both on and have them throw things at each other. That would be really fun. Now that would be fun. (laughs) <laughs> a WPF smackdown. Oh, my goodness. It'd be more like a love fest. You know it would. Yeah, it probably would. Yeah. Uh, so, Robin, thank you so much for your comment. You give me an idea for a show. I might just have to pull a trigger on that one. We'll circle back with you on it. 
And a copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of our social media. We publish every show to Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. And don't worry about going over 255 characters. We got this. <laughs> what is the limit for... It's 280 for Twitter right now. Yeah, so Twitter upped it from its original yeah, 144. Yeah. Which I always feel like is a little long these days. As somebody writes a non-trivial number of tweets. Yeah, it's not a tweet. That's a bird song. It's oh, like okay. all morning listening to them cackling out at your feeder. <laughs> okay. That's, yeah. that's specific, but okay. Yeah, well... Appropriate. All right. Well, let's bring on our esteemed guest, L. Waters, evangelizing the growth of universal design and lean accessibility as best practices within large organizations. L. works on behalf of Level Access with startups and enterprise level clients to build the foundation needed to integrate accessibility into every facet of work culture. She's worked firsthand with design, content, development, and testing teams to create agile, scalable methods to ensure more inclusive user experiences. Elle has a passion for all things agile, a fascination with emerging technology, and a healthy fear of zombies. As well you should. <laughs> <laughs> right now, I happen to be wearing ribeyes strapped to my neck so that if they break in and bite, I am protected. And, you know, at the end of the day, I got ribeyes. So. I'm still <laughs> contemplating what an unhealthy fear of zombies is. <laughs> I think when you get to the point where you have like a prepper life and pretty much you don't leave the house because you don't have your machete with you, I think right. that's probably bordering. <laughs> that's what the yeah. yeah. So the, just reminding ourselves that zombies aren't real. <laughs> so as soon Thanks, as Richard. you do anything that changes your behavior in case of zombies, that would be an unhealthy fear. I I think you're right. Hey, Sparky, so, come here. Yeah, come here. There are no real zombies. Take take the ribeyes <laughs> off. Put them back in the fridge. Just saying. <laughs> uh, I, anyway. I, may, I smoked a brisket on the weekend, you know, as you do, speaking of meat. And, Did you uh, cough? I, no. No? I didn't inhale. It's oh, the important good. part. Uh, but it was it was a 15-pound brisket. So it turns out my family and even all my friends can't eat that much brisket. So I cubed up the last four pounds and made a giant pot of chili. And now I have a gallon of chili nobody wants to eat either. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's the way it goes. All right, L. Integrating accessibility. Let's yeah. uh, talk about that. That goes beyond just a pure accessibility. We're talking about integrating it. Yeah, so usually we, we kind of joke a little bit about the five stages of accessibility. Um, there's, you know, like an awareness and an understanding, and it starts with kind of, what is that? Denial is the first stage. Oh, <laughs> I right. don't have problems. There's not that many people with disabilities. Um, I really don't want this to affect my daily work because this sounds like yet one more thing to have to put into what I do. Um and then, you know, people move to, uh, what is it, grief or fear is the next stage. <laughs> Anger, there's, I think. Um, 50, minimum of 15% of the population are people with disabilities. 
Um, there's a recognition that it actually does have a pretty big impact on people without disabilities as well, both negative and positive. And uh, there's a huge hockey stick shaped up spike in uh, lawsuits. So there's an actual legal risk to it as well. Hmm. And then right about that point, there's um, acceptance maybe, I think, <laughs> in the next stage. Oh, there's greed, there's anger and bargaining is in there somewhere. And then there's the how do I actually do this, um, do this well. And I would say that's really what we're looking at from the integration point of view, that accessibility shouldn't be this onerous, burdensome thing. What it's really about, um, 60 to 70 percent of it is really about following best practices in your own craft, whether design, development, testing, or even say you're a product owner or you're a manager of your test automation suite, it's it's really about integrating those pieces into what you're already doing. It's not meant to be disruptive. It's meant to be inclusive and expansive. So we work with a lot of different um, roles in an organization. If you build digital stuff, then we probably, and I probably work hand in hand with you. It, it strikes me that this is one of those things that you need to spend some time to get to know, and then it's just part of your workflow. You don't yeah. have to really go nuts on it. Yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of people, it takes it takes some time to get to the point because accessibility is very contextual. It does mm -hmm. have a lot of impact from user experience. So it does take some time to build those skills. But a lot of times when I'm teaching teams, my real goal is not so much to always give them all of the answers, which we can we can do whatever question somebody has, we can we can provide an answer. The better thing to do when teaching people is to teach them how to ask the right questions. So if you're a developer, knowing what you need to be looking for is really the bigger key, because then you know how to build for it in the next next iteration. Can we start by talking about some of the simplest changes or um, amendments that you can do to, say, a website that have the best bang for the buck in terms of accessibility? Yes. And I love this topic because um, it's not... It's a little bit uh, fearful for people in the accessibility industry to talk about things outside of a binary, either it is or is not accessible or compliant, yeah. that kind of thing. But the reality is we're all looking at improvements. And so I'm a huge fan of Agile. Um, full disclosure, I am married to an Agile coach. So we wow. unbond our kid into college and scrum the sale of our house. Um, <laughs> that said, awesome. um, it's, it's understandable then that we started looking at how do you really approach accessibility from an Agile perspective. And so I love the idea of looking, like you said, looking at what is the least amount of effort to get the most amount of value. And from an accessibility point of view, the most amount of value really is about how accessible something can be made um, and how many people that impacts. So from a design perspective, the number one thing someone can look at is color contrast. It's, you know, super simple, hex values, easy to test for, easy to identify, super political. Right. Because of all of the conversations that executives and design teams have and people are very emotionally attached to their brand palette. But yeah. often you've paid a lot of money to a designer to come up with a palette for your company. I mean, you'd hope that that designer included the accessibility aspects of color, but if they haven't. You've got a problem. 
Yeah, because then everybody's really attached to it, and you basically had it cascade throughout your entire, you know, application, and your customers identify you with it. it. It's fixable. It totally is. And from a dev point of view, you know, you say, just give me the right hex value, and let's keep moving. Um, so that's from a design perspective. I would say that is the number one thing that impacts the most people with disabilities from a design perspective point of view from a developer perspective and I know that we live in the era of um, responsive and we're looking at lots and lots of different viewports and people have you know a hundred different devices that they may use to access the same website but it still comes down to the basic principles of keyboard accessibility and so that maps in a mobile environment to touch so it's pretty similar and one of the good things is that if you make your applications really keyboard accessible, meaning I can unplug my mouse and traverse all throughout the application, I can access all the menus, I can load that modal dialog, I can close that modal, I can recover from any kind of errors I create on a form, all using just a keyboard. The good mm. news is you already have that assistive technology, and hopefully it's not something you have to learn. Um, the other good news is that you impact a ton of people. This is a really big user group that benefits from keyboard accessibility. And yeah. a lot of it comes from just building things semantically sound using progressive enhancement. So. Even if you have a single page app, there's a view layer, right? There's front end, HTML, CSS, JavaScript involved with that. Mm -hmm. And and so it's worth really doing things well and doing things, you know, structurally sound because it does have that huge impact. Wow. Is there a place we should be looking for the right things to do in terms of web design there? Sure. Uh, well, you could start, a lot of people start with the W3C because they are kind of uh, the true north when it comes to defining accessibility from an international standards perspective. Um, it's dry reading. <laughs> they, they work on that, but it's still pretty dry reading. Has there ever been a W3C thing that wasn't dry reading except for the <laughs> I'm a little teapot RFC? Like they're all terrible. I don't know. I think it's because when they're coming up with the standards, they have to beat every word in the submission to it has no more life in it. That's my that's my going theory. That's it's um, fair, but it's also I mean part and parcel of this is the is sort of localization, multicultural, yeah. dealing with different alphabets. Like this is all in there too. Yeah, it is. Although um, we did a research project internally and we looked at four years of data and we found that um, we do a lot of accessibility testing. Back at the old agency, I worked for Simply Accessible, which then got acquired by Level Access. And so looking at that, uh, testing is kind of the the um, the ultimate measure of whether or not somebody has really hit the bar. And we looked at four years worth of data and found that of all the accessibility issues that we logged as defects, 60 to 70% of them came back to best practices. So the truth is for uh, multi-language support, if you're looking at being able to support a lot of different languages, it's a lot of the same principles. Um, you can always build something on top of a brittle, fragile structure, but it is that much better and that much more feature-proofing to build it correctly to begin with. Right. And so it's the same thing for multicultural as well. Um, and then, you know, you just really invest some time with your UX and dev teams so that they understand their market and they understand their users and they're not just uh, factory workers producing stuff. And they're going to be able to understand the needs of their own customers. Interesting. And and 
but it does take some time, obviously, to figure all of yeah. those things out. And I mm-hmm. and I appreciate you also. You know, you're not. They're not saying these colors are good. These colors are bad. They're all about like these contrasts matter. Yeah, the combinations are where it's at. And truthfully, it's not even combinations of colors on a lot of inactive elements like the overall mood that you set with your website is less of an issue. It's more about, can I read the text on that background color? Right. And so that might be a submit button. It could be a navigation menu. It could be body content. Um, And there's a lot of crossover between uh, low vision users and mobile users. And there's a lot of crossover between um, blind users and um, search engine optimization. So it really continually underscores that the best, way to make something accessible is to first and foremost follow already established best practices and standards. And then from there, there's maybe say 30 to 40% more that's useful to learn about. And there's a ton, and I'll, I'll make sure that I send this to you guys so you can include it in the notes for the show, a ton of great free resources. So you don't have to pay somebody to help you make your site accessible. Um, it's just that sometimes it can be overwhelming and it we've been there before. So we're like your accessibility Sherpas and we can help you get through <laughs> the mountain, so to speak. So. Yeah, it's, it's very fair, and it's part part of the challenge of that whole thing. When we talk about contrast and things, we're just talking about visually impaired, like the people can still see, but they have restrictions. Yeah, so there are actually eight times as many people with low vision as there are people who are blind and use screen reader technology. Sure. Um, and and that's that's partly uh, just you know the facts of human existence, and partly because we're an aging population. Yeah, it's all the baby boomers. Yeah, it's true. And so low vision is a really, really wide group. It could be uh, someone who has spotty vision. It could be macular degeneration. It could be someone who everything is blurry unless they zoom the screen in to say 400%. Um, All of that has an impact from a color contrast perspective because the less clearly you see, the harder it is to distinguish between, say, one font and the background color behind it. Right. But really, accessibility is a pretty broad um, area, which is why we continually push back to best practices, because it's uh, remember the days of best used with Netscape 3.0 or whatever. Oh, my goodness. Trying to forget. Like we were very serious about uh, telling people, here's the rule set that I use to build this website. Now, please use the same rule set. And then between social media and responsive web, that kind of blew out of the water. And we realized we have no control over what people are using to access our website. And the same is true from from assistive technology and everything. So instead of tailoring the way you build towards specific uh, technologies or combinations, it's better to think in terms of more overarching best practices. Right. Yeah. Uh, I still feel like we're fairly generalized in a lot of the terms here. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, making sure that a page scales well, that's not you just have to test for that. I mean, is there are there test harnesses thing some tools that can actually validate this page is a quote unquote accessible? Yeah. So the good news is that automated tools are out there and there's a lot uh my company but also some other great companies in the industry sell automated tools and they fit within both DevOps and QA sort of in the life cycle more often. So you can 
um, build it into your Selenium uh, work, your Jenkins work, that kind of thing. Or you can look at it from a test automation perspective and think, you know, here's what my, my QA team would be doing, and they can do that as well. Um, the bad news is that automated tools can only capture about 25% of uh, the kinds of issues that you could otherwise find for accessibility. Um, the other good news, though, is that's 25% that you don't have to manually test. Absolutely. Right. And the better news, and this is probably, um, this is really what I'm hoping that people take away from, from this uh, podcast, actually, um, this episode, is that why why build something why build eight different date pickers and then you have to go and test eight different date pickers right, right? build one date picker one modal dialogue and build out your design system and you, that way the automated tools can be built with custom scripts so that you're testing for deviations from your patterns and then it becomes exponentially easier to do automated testing for accessibility cuz you're spending a lot of detailed effort from a UX usability and dev and code review perspective for a single pattern. And then when you build it in and your agile teams are pulling those patterns, you're not having to do anything but run those tests in your unit testing and continuous integration and that kind of thing. And you're able to identify if somebody kind of deviated from what they should be doing. It makes me wonder if the third-party component vendors put a lot of cycles into building components that are meant to be accessible that that have those capabilities built in maybe i can save some time by yeah. buying something off the shelf uh varying degrees of of success with that i would say um because i could also see them being a huge impediment too if they don't support those things yeah you might have a real problem so using you're gonna them. hack it and maybe bust your license and and that kind of thing yeah, yeah. so um, there have been some efforts there's code for america and uh the web experience toolkit that's the united states government and the canadian government um respectively and they i think i think code for america is a dot net suite i'm not sure I, hmm. I can't remember now but i know that there was an effort to build out an accessible dot net set of components that people could just kind of use and reuse within the government space um, it's been a couple of years, so I don't know what their traction has been on that, but I'll do a little research and find and see if that's available. But it's definitely the way that people should be thinking in terms of patterns and frameworks. Um, a lot of third-party frameworks have invested a certain amount of effort into accessibility, but some of the stuff gets pretty complex. The more dynamic focus path management kind of challenges that you have, the more it becomes very contextual. So I can talk about having an accessible modal dialogue, but the focus path to get to the modal and to trap focus and then to get back to what initiated the modal dialogue, that's on the developer to be able to, because it's very specific to whatever it is you're building. Right, absolutely. And and all the all these details matter, but it, again, it feels, still feels like something where you, I'm not going to think you need to take a whole sprint, but you take a few days, mm -hmm. you go through these requirements and you look at how you're doing things and say, can I, you know, how how compliant are we? How far away are we? Yeah. Just a bit of Googling around on the major component vendors for accessibility, especially on the website, shows at least documentation saying, here's how our control suite complies with W3C accessibility requirements, like that right. kind of thing. Yeah. And I think that some of them uh, do really quite well at it. 
Um, I think that most companies are going to find some use out of that, and then they're going to look at needing to build some patterns of their own and some interaction sort of standards, that kind of stuff. Um, the thing that I really love doing these days, I'm super excited about, is we have a lot of large banking clients who are looking at integrating accessibility into their agile process. And so we work with product owners and scrum masters and tech leads, and we're really looking at it. Most of this is in a scrum methodology. And we're really looking at it from ways to where, you know how Agile, everybody kind of has a bit of ownership over some of the success of whatever right. that sprint produces. It's the same thing for accessibility. So instead of having one person who has to become an accessibility expert, um, and then it kind of creates this little mini waterfall because you're leaning on that person at the end of the sprint to clear all of your stories, for example, which is like waterfall inside of Agile. Right. Um, Everybody really learns um, basic and intermediate level kind of accessibility um, expertise, and then they're able to check their own work. And to your point, they're able to just kind of build that into the part of their process. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we've seen companies have huge success with that, and it really prepares them for entering new markets because there's a lot of accessibility requirements in other countries and they all go back to the same W3C standards, right. almost all of them. So it creates a much more rapid development cycle when when you're really looking at doing things in that sort of buttoned up process way. You know, it, it strikes me wearing my sort of enterprise architect hat that this is a CapEx ex process, not an OpEx process, that there's an initial investment but yeah. that its actual overhead per page once you get over that investment is low. Yeah, it is. And um, this is, besides it being a great thing for developers to have as part of their professional, like their CV, it is an investment of a company in getting good developers, to be honest, because we've found that accessibility makes good designers and good developers great designers and great developers. And those who are just kind of mailing it in, it starts to come have that awkward moment where we start seeing, well, you know, if you have an empty anchor tag, then that's going to cause a problem for someone with disabilities. It's also just kind of crappy code. To yeah, be it's honest. bad. And <laughs> that's not, yeah. that's just not a good idea. Like don't, right. don't do, do that. Yeah. No duct tape. I'm Please. <laughs> I'm really um, I'm really interested in the legal precedence that was set, you know, who was sued for um, inaccessibility and why and what does that mean for the rest of us? Yeah, so this is a, a long, I, I should put out full disclosure, I'm not an attorney. So nothing I say is legal advice. Right. <laughs> None of us said, are. <laughs> <laughs> with, with that said, um, I, because I've been in this space for about a dozen years, I've seen a lot of uh, historical precedents with litigation. So at the very beginning, uh, the American with Disabilities Act was created long before we were you know, messing around on, on desktop PCs and, and mobile phones and things like that. And so they talk about a place of public accommodation that uh, brick and mortar basically is what they were talking about. So you see a lot of ramps, you see um, you know, handicap signs, things sure. like that. The sidewalk well, changes, those kinds of things. Exactly. Curb cuts, that kind of stuff. And so when the World Wide Web became truly world and wide, um, there was no ad adjustment to the ADA, but mm. the Department of Justice said, make no mistake, we you know, expected that that access would still also be granted to people from a dig digital perspective. But there's a lot of 
uh, knowledge gaps. People don't know what that means. They don't know how much of a burden that is on other companies, that kind of thing. So this is where the legal system gets into litigation to kind of test out and prove out ideas. And um, probably the most notable, there were some lawsuits that preceded it, but the most notable sort of landmark case was against Target. And that was in around 2006. And Target pushed back because they said, we have a brick and mortar store, lots of them, and people are able to get into that store. And the website is just a convenience. And they basically, they lost the case. Yeah, no, that argument just doesn't hold water. When it comes to someone who has mobility challenges, like that's the whole thing about the web. Like you're not going to win that one. The fact that a lot of people with disabilities, um, there's a significant portion of people with disabilities who are unemployed or underemployed because of uh, workplace challenges or other reasons. Mm -hmm. And so we're talking about an economic barrier as well. And so if you look at that and think about public transportation and the three-hour trip it might be to go to your local Target, that becomes a pretty significant impact. Absolutely. Um, and so, so Target was one of the beginning ones, but honestly, it it's like a hockey stick shape, you know, graph for a reason. And in the last three or four years, we've entered the era of sort of a nuisance lawsuit phenomenon, where you have a lot of say maybe less than honorable uh, law firms who look at this as an easy way to get several thousand dollars at a pop by sending mm-hmm. demand letters to organizations. And so it's certainly not something that in the accessibility industry that we're super happy about because it really um, it really distracts from the larger need and the larger conversation. At the same time, litigation is sometimes in the United States how things happen, right, from a civil rights perspective. Yeah, yep. So. I think we focused on web. Uh, should we talk about mobile separately? Are, are there specific rules around mobile? Yeah, mobile's awesome. No, uh, that's that's my one. That, rule. No. Mobile's mobile's uh, horrifying. I mean, let's. It's just like it's so hard. It's amazing how difficult it still is. Yeah, it is. But at the same time, I love working with mobile teams because they're usually the spunkiest out of any organization's team. Yeah, because they're all in the same foxhole of doom. <laughs> you think so? Yeah. Um, so again, there's good news on that front that uh, mobile design and development has a lot of accessibility support already baked in. True. So both from an iOS and Android perspective, I can't really speak to Windows phones or Blackberries or uh, Amazon Fire phones or any other. What's a What's a Windows phone? I've never heard of that one. Nice. <laughs> Well, I don't know of anyone with disabilities using it, so it's really not even on my radar. I don't know of anyone using it, except maybe Atlee Hunter. Yeah, they've shut down a lot of services now. Like, it's getting pretty hard to find one. From an iOS and Android perspective, there's fantastic documentation. And the truth is, if you build with the default native controls out of the box, they're basically inherently accessible, much like HTML. And so, um, you know... Custom controls, you have to build all that accessibility in. But from a native control perspective, you're leaps and bounds ahead. And so mobile is actually, I think, very easy to make accessible because there's a lot of crossover between mobile usability and accessibility. And well, and we have such tight control over the platform because there's really yeah. only two. The fact that they have a set of standards, you just have to follow them. Exactly. And 
Yeah, or or your code, you know, these days when I look at it, it's like you're either coding in a hybrid extraction like a Xamarin yeah. and it's just going to the native level and their set of controls or you're coding in a web abstraction like a, a, a phone gap type solution yep. and you're using the web accessibility approach. Yeah, and, I, and and all of that could be made fully accessible in a really seamless, straightforward way. The only thing I would recommend people not do is take one of those tools that sort of munges your code and spits out iOS or Android platform ready code. Right. The, that's usually where things get really messy. Right. And it's a sign that they don't, they're too lazy to do the real work <laughs> that needs yeah. to be done. I mean, you know, accessibility is a little bit, sometimes we get a bad rap for being like the hall monitor, you know, slow down or whatever. But the, but the reality is uh, we just, we think people should build things well. And there's a little bit of extra to make it a little more inclusive, but most of it comes from building things well. Well, and accessibility is just simply part of the user experience, right? Yeah. Like this, it makes all UX people <laughs> really follow that category of hall monitor. It's like, yeah. ah, should we should we make software that the customer actually wants to use? Like, <laughs> why why are you raining my parade? I was having That's, such a good time. Right. So crazy. I love what I made. Nobody else can use it, but I love it. <laughs> right. That's what MySpace was for. <laughs> so before I asked you what was the low-hanging fruit that had the best bang for the buck, mm -hmm. what are some of the most important things that will be really difficult or the most difficult anyway? Yeah. Um, there's a couple of things uh, from different perspectives. From a coding perspective, I think probably the most challenging is dealing with focus path management, whether you're dealing with like single page apps or if um, you're looking at validation and error messaging, that tends to be um, a pretty deep dive because much like heading structure and things like that, it has a pretty cascading impact. So um, do not use positive tab index, <laughs> please, to manage the focus. Um, that becomes like a nuclear arms race of tab index uh, attributes. What is positive tab index for those who don't know? Tab index equals zero means put it into basically that which is not a natively focusable active element, put it into the source order, wherever it is in, in the source order. And so that's fine. That makes sense. Uh, tab index equals negative one means take it out of the source order and I can programmatically set focus to it. So I can use JavaScript, for example, to open this modal dialog, but the modal dialog code itself is tab index equals negative one. But then a lot of times people, when they're looking to fix a bad focus path, so if I'm tabbing through the page or if I'm dealing with, you know, a lot of different interaction elements on the page, they just start adding like tab index equals two, tab index equals four. And it basically oh. sets it as the second or the fourth element that you come across if you're tabbing through the page. Right, That's okay. Fine, until you become like, Amazon, where you've basically been building and building and building on top of the same code base for years. And like, that's why I was like, it's a, like a nuclear arms race of, of tab index. We've seen them in the thousands before. Oh my goodness. And, 
I can't imagine the QA team and and what they, you know, what opiate of choice they must need to be dosing themselves with to be able to test for that kind of thing all the time. Because it is just, it's at that point you want to just scrap it all and say, clearly we have gone very, very wrong in this direction. So I would say focus path management is probably the most complicated from a dev perspective. Um, just managing the focus, being intentional about it and using um, the native source order when you can. And then from an overall management of accessibility, I think the biggest challenge I've seen is in university environments when um, instructors are looking to have a very interactive kind of class environment and they have students upload videos as part of homework and then they're supposed to like review each other's videos. And so when you have that user generated content, it becomes complicated because if you have, uh, say, a deaf student in your class and they're going to need a caption file. And you're then asking a student to provide a caption file, and that becomes complicated because that process isn't really straightforward, right? Because they're not really web producers. They're just students in a class. Yeah, they, they only know so much too. But I mean, this is one of the problems with the sort of community-created content in general is that yeah. – you're always going to run into those kinds of issues. I mean, your CMS can do certain things and support that. I know that even in social media, um, Twitter and Instagram now have an option to be able to add alternate text to images, which is great, Um, especially Instagram, given that it is a largely visual medium. But there's a lot of friends that I have who are blind that actually use that because content is content. So as long as you provide a description, then they're included in that conversation as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, have we just focused on visual impairments primarily? What about input devices? Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of different kinds of disabilities. I think that people with visual impairments are oftentimes the most impacted, and so they become really at the top of the uh, conversation. But there's more people with mobility impairments than there Mm -hmm. are people with visual deficiencies. Um, And so that's that keyboard accessibility thing we talked about that Mm -hmm. definitely helps both blind users with a screen reader, but also people who may have limited or next to no mobility and people who use input devices like um, a sip puff kind of device. Or if you're like Stephen Hawking was and you have sort of uh, sometimes people will have like an infrared sticker that they'll have on their forehead that works with a virtual keyboard um, that they're placed in front of. Um, people have wands that they'll be able to have maybe a stylus in their mouths. All of that maps to keyboard accessibility, which is um, the good news because it means that you don't have to be um, an expert in understanding switch devices, but you do need to build for keyboard accessibility. And you know who's really great at this are gaming companies. Yeah. I've been All right. throughout the years really impressed with the accessibility customization features that they are um, really gaming companies and, and probably – uh, some adult websites actually they they're they look at it purely as more people is is better for them and so gaming companies are great though because you see a lot of different hardware setups that people might have and as long as it supports accessibility and maybe some customized key bindings then people are in great shape to be able to participate in in playing games online those are probably great use cases because they're dealing with the reptile brain you know Yes. It's like, I got to figure this out. You know, seriously, <laughs> then there's no intellectual kind of uh, 
uh, decision making going on there. Well, maybe not for your games. I was playing Tropico last night. And oh, I, I was had- talking about adult websites. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah, I'm also thinking in terms of uh, it makes sense. Gaming companies recognize loyalty in in users too. I I have to wonder if there isn't a competitive advantage to doing accessibility really well that you become the site that people want to hang out in because it's so easy to use. I'm so glad you mentioned that. So um, disabled customers are uh, very loyal customers, partly because of the fact that if you've made something work for what their needs are, not only does it mean that they can then shop on your website, for example, but it also means that you've communicated to them that they matter to you as a company. And so that along with their families ends up bringing out some real diehard uh, loyalists and people who are sort of brand evangelists from that point on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think it's, it's very fair. Um, Audio impairments. Yeah. Uh, so there's, uh, it's, it's interesting because of the fact that we use this big umbrella term, people with disabilities, and yet people are so very different from the, how a disability might have occurred and mm-hmm. even to the point of whether it's defined as a disability. So people who uh, may have been born deaf, it is as much sometimes as a cultural identifier, as it is in a community, as it is something that um, might cause, you know, difficulties in being able to um, operate out in the world. And so the deaf culture and the deaf community is very, very strong, very cohesive. And as a result of that, um, sometimes that along with people who are neurodivergent, people who we might have formally said had cognitive disabilities, actually say, you know, this makes me different, this makes me unique, but it's the environment that makes it inaccessible, not mm-hmm. me or, you know, I don't, I'm not broken, but the site that I'm trying to access is broken. Right. So for people who are deaf uh, and hard of hearing, it comes down to whether or not somebody has a text equivalent of whatever audio and multimedia is, is being presented. So um, straightforward, again, as far as an implementation point of view, captions can be created for about a dollar a minute now with companies. And um, it's super simple. And we're actually getting to the point with machine learning that automated captions, while they're not there yet, and it's there's a lot of really hilarious videos on YouTube about what happens when you just speak aloud, whatever was automatically captioned. Yes. But we're getting there. Um, the same thing with like uh, image recognition, being able to define good alt text for images. I would say that within the next five years, we're definitely going to be at a place where some of that stuff can be um, offloaded to a machine. Um, so from a from a deaf and hard of hearing perspective, I would say caption files are the number one thing. And then recognizing if somebody is deaf and they use sign language, it's a very good assumption that that might be their first language and that English is actually, or Spanish or whatever language your site is built in is actually their second language. Right. And so keeping that in mind that the syntax is different and that somebody is, while maybe fluent in whatever it is that you've provided as a caption file, it's still like a second language to them. So something to be mindful of. Yeah. I, I used to date a girl who was a lifeguard and so knew ASL, American Sign Language, really well. I ended up learning enough of it to to communicate and came to appreciate the sheer efficiency of it. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. that shouldn't, wouldn't, can't, won't, don't, all those, same sign. Yeah. Right? All of those those verb negatives, 
they're the same sign. He said, they don't waste time. You know, they, they, you've got to make a motion for all of these things. So, Yeah, and a lot of times people think sign language is uh, just relegated to hand movements or, or finger gestures and things like that. And it's facial expressions. Mm-hmm. It's how you hold your body. It's an incredibly expressive language. Yep. That it works across a crowded room and in, in, in noisy room, too. It does. It's very interesting. If you ever go to Gayudet University, um, it's a deaf university, and it's phenomenal to see the built environment and how people build things to be more inclusive. And so at Gayudet, there's a lot of glass door, uh, glass walls. And it's because it creates the ability to communicate across greater distances, whereas right. if you're um, a hearing person, you're relying on the ability to be able to talk to somebody. And so it wouldn't even occur to you to think about 20 feet away trying to communicate with somebody that's in another room. Right. Yeah, you would never, you know, you wouldn't do that either. Uh, and, but it's interesting how we talk, deaf culture is much more of a concept, I think, than blind culture. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think they they definitely appear more galvanized, uh, blind individuals than than say low vision users or people who have different kinds of cognitive needs. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, yeah, it's it's not like everybody is stamped out the same way with any other kind of um, user group. It's not like everybody believes the same thing. Um, there's some basic operational needs that that people with disabilities will all tell you the same thing. Um, for example, if somebody's got low vision and they have to zoom the screen in, they will tell you, please don't disable the ability for me to be able to resize the text. Right. And that's, you know, that's kind of a straightforward thing. But as far as how they approach uh, what they're doing, it can be very different. Some people have big magnifying screens that sit outside their computers. Some people use software. Uh, some people bump up the text size. There's a lot of solutions. And the same thing with blind users. Um, and yet deaf culture is really, um, very much of a community, human community kind of aspect to the way that they view, um, their life. And maybe it's because they have a language that they, that they support. I'm not sure, um, exactly why it's evolved. I think it's the language thing. I think that they, and and it's interesting thinking in context of software that, Mm -hmm how important language is to culture and then thinking how does your application reflect that culture and language? Yeah. I mean, ultimately the best practice besides just building things well is involving your users in the design and testing process, right? And so if you do feel that you have a, a group of people who've expressed, you know, we use your product we're deaf, we don't feel supported, for example, mm-hmm. then, you know, pay them to participate in a usability study yeah. and and really learn and understand what their needs are. Are there screen readers for websites that blind people are already using yes. um, with more or less success? Um, and, and, and I know like having really good metadata and all that stuff in your app uh, in, on your in your website is good but what about for i mean don't these things just read the text and do people navigate around that way how do they do that yeah so there are a, a few very popular screen readers that people use um jaws which is job access work solution i think it's been a long time since i decoded that acronym job um, access on- with speech Oh, thank you. I looked it up. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's been a while since I've actually pulled that out and thought about it. Uh, so JAWS is typically a Windows-based uh, screen reader, and 
to your earlier question, it is, um, as with all screen readers that are in use, it's at the operating system level, because in order uh -huh. to be able to even load the browser, you need a screen reader to be able to navigate around on your system and your desktop and load that program. And people do more than just surf the web. So there's um, you know, a Word document that somebody is working on, their email program, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And so JAWS is a Windows-based uh, screen reader. Then you have VoiceOver, which is built into every Mac. And you also have VoiceOver for iOS, which is built into every iPhone. Yep. And it mm -hmm. works really well, not surprisingly, with Safari. So you see these AT, assistive technology, and browser pairings pretty often. And it's good to think about that because the goal is not the same way with um, browsers. The goal is not to make an identical experience. The goal is to support the expected experience with that screen reader and browser combination. And then finally, there's uh, NVDA, uh, non-visual desktop access. And that's a really interesting screen reader because it's got a lot of heavy research and development and um, web standards and user agent standards built into how they develop. And it's not unlike the way Mozilla um, approaches Firefox. And so not surprisingly, a lot of pairings come down to NVDA with Firefox as well. Um, what about uh, things like Alexa, Siri, all of these uh, guys? Yeah. Are they at the point where we can say, go read me this website or, uh, you know, tell, I mean, the, she, Alexa anyway, does pull stuff off Wikipedia. If you say like, tell me about the revolutionary war, you get like the intro introductory paragraph off Wikipedia, but you know, it, for more esoteric things, how yeah. do you see that happening more? Uh, we don't see it from long form content yet because I don't think that sites, um, we have a, we have a pluralist household. There's like a battle going on in our house between uh, Amazon Echoes and Google Homes. So it's kind of entertaining <laughs> in our house, if not a little uh, confusing. And it, part of it is my fascination with seeing how they stack up against each other. And I would say that just from casual use, it doesn't go deep enough from a long content, read the website. However, we have found time and time again with usability testing with people with disabilities that they are embracing all of the smart home features that you you know you think of as a convenience turns into an actual sort of life path and the way that people are organizing how they get things done. So um, definitely, I would say that um, that voice technology is a huge, huge leap forward. The same way that mobile phones became an enormous leap forward for people with disabilities because then they were able to customize a device, access a lot of things, and then also take it with them, right? Um, it's the same thing when it, we're looking at machine learning and AI and voice controlled kind of um, and wearable technology. All of that is being um, enthusiastically embraced in the disability community because people view it as, as a help and an assistant to working out things. So there's people with low vision. I mean, I'm sorry, uh, low mobility that actually have like an NFC ring that they can tap against a key lock and it'll open a door for them. And then they're cool. not having to do that twist of a knob in order to open a door. That's an, a good example of, of what some people are using it for. Yeah, I won't have it on my door anyway, but that's just some lazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think that principle holds true that something that makes it easier for everyone oftentimes fills a pretty important accessibility need for somebody who might have a more severe need. Yeah, 
and, and, and actually makes a difference whether they can do it or not. Right. I can sort of see the Alexas and series and all of that sort of getting more sophisticated at teasing out the data that uh, somebody is looking for just out on the internet in general and, and towards more of a general browser UI. And I don't mean that in the same way that we use a browser now, but right. it, just to be able to say, you know, like, it, you know, uh, does you know, chilies serve buffalo wings on Sundays or something like that? Or does my local place, you know, it it should be smart enough to go out to their website, find the menu, find out how much they are, all that stuff, right? It could be all in one or it could evolve into sort of similar to the way that screen readers are in that it's more command and control of another application. That it, it remains to be seen as to how that will evolve just because I don't need Siri technically to be able to provide all that, but it would be great if Siri was able to upload, like open something that could do that as well. Cause then it kind of expands even what you could do with it from that point. Yeah. It's interesting to think in terms of whether or not there's a lot of energy going into accessibility aspects with these voice systems. Cause they could, uh, we could do a lot. I think there is. I think it's being, you know, like any kind of business uh, model, they're weighing the value and the effort. Um, And so we are still talking about 15 to 20 percent of the population. So they probably have some other basic things like um, (laughs) like I don't know why Amazon Echo refuses to get really detailed with Wikipedia results versus I could basically ask the Google home anything and it goes straight to Google. And I, I do know why it does that, but you know what I mean? Like, I think there's, there's bigger basic levels, Maslow's hierarchy of voice assistant, uh, product features, maybe. (laughs) 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 But yeah, I think that's definitely the future, um, where we're headed. And I think there's some interesting confluences going on between gaming and uh, voice to enable technology, wearables, things like museum spaces and other places where you see sort of a mixture between physical and digital in sort of a hybrid environment. I think it's going to be a really exciting time to be involved in that kind of stuff. Awesome. I think that's a show. Absolutely. L, it's been a great hour. I mean, we learned so much and, you know, it's not as scary as everybody thinks. I'm glad you're breaking it down for us. I'm so glad. And I'm so thankful. Thankful. I love spending time with you guys. So thanks again for having me on the show. You bet. All right, peeps. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.
see. 